0: Fortress on a hill. Thank you for joining us.
1: I'm Henry, and I'm Danny. Now let's get started.
0: All right, everybody. Uh, I'm going to start off today with a uh, article from Arnold R. Isaac at uh, Tom Dispatch, and he he discusses about how the Trump administration has made it a priority to deport anybody who's in violation of our immigration laws. They're also working really hard to connect that idea with legal immigration and with terrorists as well, so that if someone is an illegal immigrant in whatever way, undocumented in whatever way they happen to be, that they are now a potential terrorist. And it doesn't doesn't pass muster for common sense, but I can see how a lot of people would... (laughs) in a fear mindset would uh, attach themselves to that. Um, Here's from the article. It was the message in the president's first address to Congress a year ago last week when he declared that the vast majority of individuals convicted of terrorism and terrorism-related offenses since 9-11 came here from the outside of the country. At that time, he urged the U.S. immigration system be reshaped because, quote, we cannot allow a beachhead of terrorism to form inside America. Now, the article comes on the heels of a Department of Justice um, homeland security report which states that nearly three out of every four individuals convicted in international terrorism cases in U.S. federal courts from 9-11 to 2016 were foreign-born, a total of 402 by their count. And announcing that report, Attorney General Jeff Sessions proclaimed that he highlighted the ways in which, quote, our immigration system has undermined our national security and public safety. In the same press release, Homeland Security Secretary uh, Kristen uh, Nielsen warned that the United States cannot continue to rely on immigration policy based on pre-9-11 thinking that leaves us woefully vulnerable to foreign-born terrorists. And the basic da- database on which Trump and his associates rely on is called the chart of public-slash-unsealed international terrorism and terrorism-related convictions. Wow, as a mouthful. It's compiled and updated every every year by the Department of Justice's National Security Division and lists defendants convicted on federal charges in cases since, uh, since 9-11. Despite its title, the list includes a significant number of cases which are verifiably not terrorism related and a good many more which um, a terrorism connection was not only uh, not proved but m- remains highly unlikely. Now the example they gave was about a fellow Uh, Named Anson Mahmood, I think I said that right, and who was a legal immigrant to the U.S. from Pakistan, and he was accused of terrorism in the first few weeks following 9-11. He was taking pics at a spot on the Hudson River in New York City and was turned in by a security guard who accused him of photographing a nearby reservoir and water treatment plant. He was later cleared by the NYPD, but he was still deported because he had co-signed an apartment lease and registered a car for a Pakistani couple who ended up overstaying their visas. Both the couple and Mahmood were eventually deported, but none of them were found guilty of terrorist acts. And see, that right there is the rub. That's that's the connection they want people to make, and and, and Trump, he's... I hate giving the damn man a fucking compliment. He's really good at answering a question that leaves it so open-ended that you can place whatever answer you want in the end, especially when it comes to immigration. And... I also wanted to take this moment to mention the terrorist watch list. It's another sore spot in this particular subject. There are people from all over the world, including some American citizens, are placed on the list, and there really isn't a designed process to remove them. Even the fact that they're on a list is often a secret. Travel, financial matters, moving to and from a foreign country, all these items are deeply affected by being placed on one of these lists.
1: You know... This article is really interesting to me because the quote that jumps out is when you said, or when Trump said that we can't allow a beachhead for terrorism. That's the big lie, isn't it? The big lie is that there's a direct connection between immigration policy and terrorism, Yes. that somehow we're supposed to think that if only we built a big enough wall, if only we deported enough people, if only ICE had billions of more dollars, that the problem of terrorism would disappear. Of course. The problem with that is that you are far more likely to be shot by a toddler in your own home than you are to be killed in a terrorist attack. And among terrorist attacks, you're more likely to be killed by a right-wing white male citizen than you are an Islamist or someone with any affiliation to the religion of Islam. But the only terrorism that counts in the hands of the political right in the hands of the alarmist administration of Donald Trump is the brown Muslim variety. Yep. I mean, in fact, that's how we label terrorism, right? Because when the guy in Vegas unloaded on up to 500 people in a concert, that's not terrorism. That's mental illness, we say. A disturbed individual. Yeah. Right, he's a disturbed individual. Now, if one person had died, but the shooter or the bomber was a Muslim, we would talk about it for weeks, and we would come up with new ways to protect America from terrorism. We might even have to invade a new country. Yep. One other thing you said that jumped out at me was this problem of entrapment. You see, you mentioned how everyone got deported in the case with the Pakistanis and co-signing alone. Right. What's not mentioned in most articles is Many of the cases that the FBI lists where they supposedly stopped a threat in progress are more cases of entrapment than they are actual terrorist incidents. There's a a very famous case in Newburgh, New York, which is just north of New York City and uh, near West Point, uh, where I went to school and where I taught. And in many of these cases, the FBI uses either undercover agents or FBI paid informants to actually encourage these either immigrants or disgruntled citizens or disgruntled Muslims, uh, they actually give them the idea for the plan. Now, of course, that's not allowed. That's that's entrapment, but it happens all the time, and it's really difficult to prove because who has more credibility in a court of law—an FBI agent who's discussing his case, or you know the perpetrators of an alleged terrorist attack? Exactly. There was a really, really good documentary. I recommend you all uh, pick it up. It, it was on Showtime, I believe, but you can probably find it on Netflix now. It's called The Newberg Conspiracy, and uh, it's all about the way uh, this FBI informant convinces, essentially, these um, these African-American uh, Muslims from the Nation of Islam to uh, to get involved in an alleged attack in New York City. And, of course, the entire case unravels when you watch this documentary and realize that, that largely it's the FBI that's putting that up to it. So, of course, I'm not saying there aren't real terrorist dangers and I'm not saying there aren't actual terrorist threats. And I'm not even saying that there's not a significant terrorist threat among, uh, you know, the political Islamic faction worldwide. What I am saying is let's keep it in perspective and let's understand that the nature of the threat is way overblown. In fact, it's rather alarmist. And, and, and I think we need to we need to expose the big lie. And the big lie is that that every terrorist is an immigrant and therefore... Uh, Every immigrant should be looked at with suspicion because the minute we do that, the minute we do that, we're not following the general principles of the Constitution and uh, where we can't have a religious test. And so everyone has to be looked at individually. Every case has to be unique. and, uh, And we can't let the president of the United States or his administration use scare tactics to have us treat one certain subset of the population with a degree of fear and mistrust that is uh that is not backed up by the statistics
0: absolutely so there's a there's a part two to our immigration horror show today um u.s customs and immigration services has announced that they are closing every single customs and immigration office near u.s army basic training locations now A common part of foreign-born enlistees to the U.S. military is an expedited path to either citizenship or a green card. Ordinarily, they would have their background checks completed while the soldier is finishing basic training, and once that's complete, they're given the chance to visit a, a customs office and do the work on their own status. With the Trump administration closing these locations, they're doing everything they can to prevent these service members, and they are service members, sworn in, contract signed, in basic training, from becoming citizens or receiving green cards. Now, this goes in line with Trump's rhetoric on his hatred of chain immigration, and it also demonstrates his lack of care for service members, period. Secretary Mattis has said he will work to ensure foreign-born troops get their immigration status changed, including the DREAMers, but I don't see it in word or action from him or anyone else that should be standing up for these service members. And so one last note for me about this. If you're considering joining the U.S. military, I know we've said it before on this podcast, make sure that everything that you want from the military is in writing. Because if it's not in writing on a piece of paper that you sign, you're not going to get it. And it's clear that there have been people who've been given some kind of high-in-the-sky idea about becoming citizens, but somewhere in there, either their chain of command or them on their own, I don't know, but somebody in there failed them. And, and that's not acceptable. I don't ever remember serving with somebody who came from another country, but to me, we, we, we come from all walks of life in the military. Certainly, you know, if, if there's a language barrier, it might be a little hard, but other than that, we want good troops. We want people that are gonna be loyal and faithful and, and do a good job for the military. It doesn't matter to us where they come from because we all come from somewhere and it's all different.
1: It's, the, the problem with recruiting is it's a numbers game. And so once you've signed the dotted line, the recruiter is generally on to the next guy. That's not to say that recruiters are evil people. It's just it's the nature of the, of the assembly line business that they're in. I mean they have quotas. And so you have to be very careful that anything you want from the military, like you said, is in writing before you sign. Absolutely. Before your contract is finalized. It blows my mind, though, that we have ever, ever deported U.S. veterans. It's mind-blowing. And and something people should understand is, do you know where one of the most highly successful recruiting stations is? It's in American Samoa. Because in places like Puerto Rico, in places like Samoa, in places like Guam, the enlistment rates – now, they're they're citizens, although they can't vote in presidential elections – Because they live in the territories. But what I'm saying is many times people from the territories or in many cases even from foreign countries are as patriotic or even more likely to sign up for the military and put their lives on the line. Yep. I had a soldier killed under my command in Afghanistan who was not yet a citizen. If Americans understood that, if they understood that people were dying for this country who weren't yet citizens, I think they'd have to look – think long and hard about whether any veteran should ever be in line for, de- for de- being deported. You know, we talk about the 800,000 dreamers. Some of those dreamers are teachers, some of them are social workers, but a lot of them are soldiers. They don't know any other country, and so it's just as normal for them to go see the recruiter at age 18 as it is somebody who was born in Peoria, Illinois, because they may have been here, the immigrant, since they were two years old. And I don't like the word illegal, because I don't, I think that when you use the word illegal immigrant, it puts a value judgment on the term. It gives it a negative connotation. The reality is they're undocumented Americans yes. because they don't know any other country, and we can't hold the uh, the child who was brought here at age two, four, six, eight responsible. We don't hold them responsible in a court of law. Yep. So how in the world can we hold them responsible for crossing the border? Uh, there needs to be an, an expedited path. I know there already often is, but it, it needs to be uh, codified and, and it needs to be followed to a T for veterans or enlistees who, who, who are undocumented to become citizens because that process should be so fast. And uh, the, the fact that there are any flaws in the system, it's, it's, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing for us as a country. There is
0: a – I can't think of his name right now. There's an E7 who um, – he's a veteran now. Uh, working as a defense contractor, and his wife was slotted for deportation under some of the new Trump administration regulations. And they were able to get it so she could stay, but she's white. And the whole article, I need to do a whole segment, and I'm sorry I don't have it in front of me right now, guys, but the the whole article about that, it, it really showed the difference there as far as how far... The government's willing to go for the people they believe are most deserving and who they're going to leave behind. Um, it it dumbfounds me that our president and our executive branch have that much power to make that many changes and make them that quickly, but that is the nature of our government.
1: Uh, I think I'm well, oh, go, you know, go, just one more point on that. Okay. Who do soldiers marry? Soldiers marry uh, Koreans because we have had soldiers in Korea since 1950. Yep. They marry Germans because we've been occupying Germany since 1945. They marry Japanese on Okinawa. Especially the white, the Caucasian immigrants who soldiers marry, they're, they're, they're seen as no threat whatsoever. Because the reality is there are classes of immigrants yes. in the mind of the alarmists on the right top tier like president trump said people from norway people from northern europe yep. white christians they are not to be feared next best probably asian right okay we think oh you know asian they're you know they they tend to be very successful when they come over here a lot of that is uh is, is stereotypical anyway yep. but they are not considered a major threat because i mean asians don't commit terrorism in the minds of these people who associate islam the worst thing you could be is brown right because if you're if you're a mexican immigrant the president wants us to believe you're an MS-13. Yep, exactly. Even if 0.001% of immigrants are, are an MS-13. And 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 if you're – the worst thing you could be is an Arab or a Muslim because the assumption is you're a terrorist. I just told you and I wrote an article in Truthdig about how toddlers with guns are more likely to be killing you than a terrorist. And even if you are unlucky enough to be killed by a terrorist, which is about a 1 in 3.6 million chance, it's more likely it's a white Christian who did it. And yet we allow ourselves to be fooled into these racialized stereotypes of immigrants and the threat that they provide. And we have got to break it. We have got to be intellectually mature enough to get past the race, to get past the religion and look at things empirically. All right. Hey, so moving on, uh, this is a brief article I want to talk about. It's called A Requiem for Vietnam. It's – it's from the american conservative and it's posted by andrew basevich uh, i had the pleasure of meeting uh, colonel retired basevich uh, just this week on uh, this this past monday march 5th i was uh, on a conference with him he was the uh, chair of the panel and he asked questions and we were basically doing a retrospective on the war on terror and there were four veterans on the panel uh, all of which are also authors and uh, or work for think tanks or teach And we just discussed the problems with the war on terror or what used to be called the war on terror. Before I went to the conference, I printed out this article on Vietnam at Basewitch. Now, Basewitch is a 1969 grad of West Point served with uh, armored cavalry units in 1970 to 71 in Vietnam. What's interesting about him is that he has been a critic of the war in Iraq and Afghanistan since the outset of those wars. Uh, that is rare for a military veteran, especially uh, of his era. He's been remarkably consistent on that. And then his own son was killed in Iraq in 2007. And he received hate mail from people who said that in some ways he was complicit in his son's death because he was anti-war. This is a guy who's been through a lot. Uh, I will say that his, his personality is remarkably warm and humble. And uh, he's just a great guy to know. And I was really... Thankful to know, but this article looks back at his war, looks back at Vietnam, but he's always looking forward. And so, what he did here is he looked at a June 1975 issue of the New York Review of Books, and and they did like a symposium called a Requiem for Vietnam, where they got like the brightest philosophers and politicians and, and novelists from the era to, to, to say a little something about what they thought the Vietnam War meant. This is two months after Saigon fell, two months after the war was finally lost by the United States. And Beysiewicz knows what he's doing because the quotes he picked to highlight could just as easily apply to the war in Iraq or the war in Afghanistan. I'm just going to read you a few and I'm going to tell you what I think. Beysiewicz starts out by saying that the essays are in this symposium were interesting back in 1975, and he says they could serve as a stand-in for a similar symposium, which we might call the meaning of Iraq and Afghanistan, and he thinks that's unlikely to see the light of day anytime soon. Now, I think we did something similar on Monday for Harper's Magazine. Check out the June edition, and, uh, and you'll see the transcript, uh, some of which is brilliant words from yours truly, <laughs> probably, <laughs> probably not. But let's take a look at just four of the quotes from journalists, historians, authors, scholars about the Vietnam War and ask ourselves if the same quote couldn't apply to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan as we look at those in retrospective. Gary Wills was a journalist and a historian back in the 1970s and he said because we concentrate on ourselves the result of Vietnam will probably be that we will have to search for some new place to prove our toughness. That's interesting to me. We lose a war in Vietnam instead of it making us more humble, more careful about intervention in foreign societies. Gary Wills thinks, in fact, we're going to go around the world looking for places to prove that we are tough. I think that's been the case in Iraq and Afghanistan as well. Quite frankly, those wars have been rather indecisive. They uh, they haven't turned out the way we hoped. And yet we've gone even further afield into North Africa, into other parts of the Middle East, trying to prove that we are still the greatest military in the world, which we are, and that we can defeat terrorism. Rather than having a more humble approach, which would be appropriate, in my opinion, we look to expand our wars. Susan Sontag, who was a social critic, pretty famous at the time, she said, we, in quotes, in the anti-war movement, this is the Vietnam anti-war movement, affected public opinion, but we weren't able to affect the use of power or damage the spectacular consensus for continuing a surrogate war without American deaths. I wish there was an anti-war movement that was as strong as it was in Vietnam. But what she's saying is even that anti-war movement, of which we have nothing similar today because there's no longer a draft, she says, we couldn't really stop the war. You know, we affected public opinion, but we we couldn't really stop what remained an electoral consensus for war. And I would argue that's true today, that even if we did have an anti-war movement, which I wish we did, Democrats and Republicans essentially agree on one thing, which is they have to be tough on foreign policy and a surprising amount of Americans and a surprising amount of their representatives and senators continue to vote for illegal foreign wars without updating the authorizations for military force or actually declaring war. Chuck Schumer is the minority leader in the Senate. He's a Democrat. Trump would have you believe he's such a liberal. Guess what, guys? He voted for the Iraq War. Mitch McConnell, the evil hard right villain of left-wing feelings. Well, he voted for the war too. So where's the political party that's anti-war? The mainstream leaders of both parties were in favor of the Iraq war and in favor of continuing indefinite war on our current authorizations. Christopher Lash, who was an historian and social critic, he said back in 1975 that on the one hand, American policymakers exaggerated their own capacity to control events While on the other hand, they worried excessively about the American image abroad, as they themselves were not quite sure if they were as tough and big as they pretended to be. And this gets back to insecurity. Insecurity is like the original sin of all men and women, but uh, specifically in a culture of masculinity, there's an enormous amount of insecurity. I truly believe that human nature is reflected in government activities in foreign policy abroad. In some sense, the government or the military or the policymakers at the top really are just a reflection of the flaws in human nature. Too often we bomb places or we send troops places because we're actually insecure about how powerful we are or aren't because we actually doubt our ability to change societies with our military. We feel like we have to prove something abroad. The war on terror, in one sense, has been one big campaign of revenge. Problem is, we haven't gotten revenge against the people who actually perpetrated 9-11. 15 Saudis perpetrated 9-11 out of 19 total hijackers. We didn't bomb Riyadh. We bombed Baghdad, where there were zero hijackers. I would argue we've created probably 10 times as many terrorists as we've killed. I want to end on this final one. George Kennan, diplomat and historian, he wrote in 1975 that the lessons of Vietnam are plain and few, not to be hypnotized by the word communism and not to mess in other people's civil wars where there is no substantial American strategic interest at stake. Here's what I want you to do, folks. I want you to take that word communism and I want you to insert terrorism and let's read it again. The lessons of, instead of Vietnam, we're going to say the lessons of Iraq and Afghanistan are few and plain. Not to be hypnotized by the word terrorism and not to mess in other people's civil wars. If I was going to write my requiem for the war on terror, it would be that. You can't call everything you don't like terrorism in order to give yourself an excuse to invade that country or bomb that country. And one should be very, very careful about getting involved in other people's civil wars. It rarely turns out well. And here's a quick prediction. And if I'm wrong, guys, email me. If I'm wrong, (laughs) troll me on Twitter and in the comments section of my articles. Don't worry, you'll be in good company. I'm attacked regularly and tell me I'm wrong. But here's a prediction. Every one of the civil wars that we are currently involved in in the Middle East, Syria and Yemen, the two that stand out most, neither of those is going to turn out in a positive way for American interests. And neither of those civil wars is going to make us any safer. So that's the last thing I want to say about that article. basevich does something brilliant here. He brings us back to Vietnam. He shows us what people said about Vietnam right after it ended. And I think he shows us that almost every one of those summaries could apply to the wars today. And that's that's scary because it makes me think we haven't learned very much from our past mistakes in history, i.e. the Vietnam War.
0: Oh, we haven't. I, uh, listening to you reminded me of, uh, a- a bit by George Carlin that was around the time of uh, I'd say 95 or so. And he was talking about all the, the rhetoric around us departing Vietnam and that we pulled out and that as a man, you can't pull out. Okay. (laughs) So in going into Iraq in 91, he he said that he quoted Bush and he said, this time we're not going to pull out. This time we're going to go all the way. And yeah, it's, it's, it's grade school, type stuff, but it does reflect the intentions of a person because if you can't articulate well enough the reasons for doing it, and then you just, uh, you just downgrade to feelings, how people feel about it, then you're at a whole different set of requirements for, for, for an intervention. Um, but no, it, it, it you and I saw it in the military that the, um, uh, masculinity, the, the, um, uh, masculinity on hyper steroids more like it um but the, the 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 nature of that and that it drives people to do things that they wouldn't otherwise do but the the key is is that can they dissect it down enough into simple things we're taking these people to this country and we're going to fight and then the result no we didn't get our result it's that simple it, it, it's not but but when It's put on to feelings when Trump says something about, you know, that we're our our respect in the world, our our, uh, us being on the world stage, that people laugh at us and stuff. Well, people laugh at us because of our militarism, not because we're dealing with masculinity and don't know how to deal with it as a nation.
1: Trump talks like every single problem in the world can be drilled down to like the analogy of the bully in the schoolyard. Yeah. And it it shows his intellectual immaturity, in my opinion. Foreign affairs are much grayer than the black and white fables of bullies in the schoolyard. You know, a lot of that's bullshit anyway. I was raised on that shit, too. Oh, the only way to stop a bully is to fight back. The only way to stop ability is to show him that you're willing to fight. Even if you lose, he'll respect you. You know something? More than half the time, that's not fucking true. No. It just isn't. The weak guy he probably just loses more and more. The bully is empowered every time he, you know, he beats on a little guy. Look, I'm not saying you shouldn't stand up to bullies, I'm not saying this and there's not appropriate, but violence begets violence. It does. In world affairs and in the schoolyard. But first of all, the schoolyard is not the appropriate analogy. It is so immature and so simplistic. Trump is personally afraid of people laughing at him. He is wildly insecure and then he applies that to the united states of america he takes everything personally realism and prudent foreign policy sober strategy demands it demands a mature nuanced view of foreign policy that's what matters last thing i want to say though about what you brought up (laughs) I I used to teach some cultural history at West Point, which was weird because almost everybody there just like teaches military history, but I'm really interested in like American culture and how it reflects society. And you mentioned these like these words like pull out and how there's like there's obvious sexual uh, undertones for a lot of these words when it comes to masculinity. Uh, but even in the cold war we saw this same thing and i i find language fascinating i'm a little obsessed with language because i think language gives a lot away it tells us something about ourselves and, and what we're thinking that maybe isn't obvious at first during the cold war the, the key terminology for each of the political parties and for all politicians was is he is he uh, is he soft is he soft on communism you know is he hard is he is he hard on communism and and I'm I'm not trying for for schoolyard laughs, but it's interesting that we apply these sort of phallic justifications and these nuances that are that have the the subtlety of sexuality and masculinity as they apply to foreign policy. Keep an eye on that, folks, because uh, there's something to it. Listen to this president, and uh, and you'll see that that most uh, the most sophisticated he ever is is still immature schoolyard analogies. And it's dangerous, guys. It's dangerous. We, we need serious intellectual uh, debate about these issues. We're not getting it. No.
0: No, we're not getting it at all. All right. Uh, now, guys, we're going to go back to Najir for a little bit. Um, for those who might not be uh, initiated with the story, um, back in October of this year, there was uh, four American Special Forces troops, uh, three, three Green Berets and a mechanic, um, were killed in Niger. Um What was the name of the organization, Danny? I'm blanking on it right now, the, uh, who they thought it was. Yeah,
1: they, 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 they called themselves an Islamic State affiliate. Okay. Um, they, I think I believe they called themselves the Islamic State and the Islamic Sahil. Uh, essentially, they were just a, a franchise of the Islamic State. They're not connected to Baghdadi in uh, Syria and Iraq. Uh, they've just called themselves the Islamic State because that's the, that's the popular brand right now.
0: Maybe uh, Baghdadi should sue them.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh,
0: so anyways, um, since the time since the ambush happened, there has been a lot of different information that has come out. Um, and some of, you know, it, it, we've, we've had to wait for a lot of little details on exactly how the troops got into the, in, how they were able to be ambushed, the kind of equipment they were carrying, the kind of mission they were on. Well, there was a new report um, that came out on the Niger ambush, and this is from uh, Sisk at Military.com. A recent New York Times article published ahead of a huge report on the Niger ambush stated that there were several leadership factors that helped to place the 12-man team in further harm. The Times report said that AFRICOM poorly planned the Joint Patrol and then changed the mission three times while it was underway, leading to the deaths of the four Americans, four Nigerian troops, and an interpreter. Now, I know the, uh, a couple different different outlets. Some people have mentioned that there was 11 troops and one interpreter on the mission. Some have said 12 and one. I, I, I hope we'll get a definitive answer eventually, but we're still looking at it. What was to have been a routine operation with little risk turned into a raid on a terrorist base to capture a militant leader. ...carried out by troops lacking air or ground backup and who were unprepared and ill-equipped for the task, the Times said. It cited survivors of the patrol, local villagers, families of the fallen, uh, named and unnamed U.S. and Nigerian officials... ...and official documentation to call into question the sketchy U.S. accounts thus far what happened... ...from small details in the overall scope um, and purpose to the U.S. counterterrorism terror mission in Africa... The Pentagon said U.S. troops in Niger were barred from offensive actions on joint patrols. The Times said the joint patrol diverted to a mission to capture militant leader Dudun Shafo, I think I'm saying that right, um, who was believed to pledge allegiance to the uh, Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. And uh, thank, thank you for clearing that for me, Danny, so I get what's going on there. Um Chafou's capture had been assigned to a separate U.S. Special Forces team, but their mission was scrapped, the Times reported. French air support in neighboring Mali that was tasked to assist the team was told to stand down. Someone in command, the Times could not determine who, told the Joint Patrol, which was already underway, to raid a base near the Mali border where Shafu's presence was suspected. Someone in command did not, but they didn't tell the French of the change in mission. So... uh, Danny, you were a commander. What would be happening to that commander right now?
1: Uh, Quite frankly, only captains and below usually are held accountable for tactical mistakes. Sometimes lieutenant colonels, generals are never held accountable. Uh, The buck usually stops with some captain somewhere. And if a lowly infantry captain were to not plan for his own air support, not provide contingency plans for follow-on efforts— and not have just the general support and Plan B available, that individual would probably be fired.
0: For my part, I, I, I looked at this as an NCO, and I, I looked at, you know, um, you know, pre-checks and, and, and the things that NCOs check on their soldiers to do. One that really struck out to me, and I, it's just a thought, but it's about them resupplying for water. We're talking about that they were supposed to be away from their home base if this mission went correctly for, say, 24 hours. Why was it that the team didn't have more water with them? Because to me, I, I can't imagine us going on a patrol in Iraq, stopping for somewhere in the city or, or even a small town to get water for ourselves. To me, that that's just horrible planning. Um. Why was it two teams and then cut to one? Why was there French air support available and then there was cu- it was cut? Um, why was it that this ill-prepared team was sent on a kill-capture mission when there were uh, other JSOC assets in the area because they sent JSOC assets to help with the initial ambush with the aftermath of that? You know, there's, there's, there's route recon. There's, there's so many things about this that just scream out to me, ill-prepared.
1: Yeah, and um, as an NCO, I'm sure, I'm sure you're on top of this because platoon sergeants are usually in charge of this. Where was the, What was the CASAVAC plan?
0: Exactly. What was yes. the MEDEVAC
1: plan? There was none. We know that because of how long it took to get the wounded off the battlefield.
0: That was something I saw in a, a previous article, and it's something that we have to understand for U.S. operations of this kind. In Iraq and Afghanistan, we have air superiority we can go, and there's a, there's a term, it's called the golden hour. And that means that we're able to get a wounded soldier to a surgeon's table to be worked on within 60 minutes. In Africa, I don't think there's any place in AFRICOM where a commander could honestly say that could happen. That the, a, a soldier, and, and even an accident, a rollover, an in, uh, ND, negligent discharge. There's, there's so many different ways that troops get hurt without being in combat. You said it. Well, what? What were the hell were they going to do?
1: Um, well, see, that's part of the. That's part of the problem. Is this this whole AFRICOM mission, this whole advise and assist mission in Africa? It's ad hoc nonsense. It's thrown together. It's this slippery slope mission creep allegedly we don't do combat operations in Africa. Oh, uh, until there's a terrorist nearby and we think maybe we could get them, so then we yep. change the mission on a fly. And actually, we're going to do it because it's completely secretive and the American people don't know what the hell we're doing here anyway. Shit, the senators didn't even know what was going on. Lindsey Graham, who was in favor of invading any country in the world, including the Bahamas, mm-hmm. uh, even he said, oh, I didn't know we had uh, 800 troops in Niger. Uh, I didn't know that. Because it's all so secretive. And the mission creep is unbelievable. When you put soldiers on the ground somewhere and all you have is a hammer, the soldiers being the hammer, every single problem looks like a nail. And and the the temptation is to use our military guys on the ground, especially special forces, because everyone thinks special forces are Superman yep. who can do anything, anytime. But they're human beings too, and they yep. need air support, and they need casualty evacuation support, and they need maintenance support and Absolutely. all of that. And instead, we put these guys in situations they should never be in. Oh, by the way, they're in situations that are dangerous that they should never be in in order to capture terrorists where I would argue there is little to no evidence those terrorists are planning actual attacks on the American homeland right now. There is a big difference between an extremist in a local conflict and Osama bin Laden actually planning to take down towers in the United States. I would argue that less than one in 10 of these local Islamists that we go after is a genuine threat to the American homeland. Americans are dying in local wars because we apply the terrorist label to anyone we don't like, as long as they're Muslim.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, There was i I don't know if I, I have it up in the show notes. I'll make sure it's in there before the episode goes out. But there was another article that came out five or six days ago about... Uh, Nigerian um, reporters being invited onto the new drone base that's there in uh, uh, Niamey. Okay. And yeah. I, I, number one, no American journalists were allowed on there. And when American journalists did ask about the possibility of going on the base, they were just told flat out no. But the Nigerian authorities there were welcomed onto the base. But at the end of the article, the people that they asked, you know, the local villagers, they still don't. There, there still is no understanding on their part as to why we're there and why we need this huge, eight hundred personnel armed drone base in this spot. Now we know why we, why the, uh, why the U.S. has it, but for them, it, 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 it doesn't. The article didn't make it sound like it translated to jobs as far as contracting or building anything. It just, we're here. If you wanted to come see it, oh, it's shiny, great, now go away. We've now done our obligatory, tell the local people about the dangerous things that that are living next to them. All right.
1: All this stuff stuff about Niger, I just want to say the last thing about it is uh, it is months and months and months after this event, and we're still finding out details, and the story is still not straight. And what that tells me is that there is a danger to the secretive nature of American combat operations around the world. There's a time and place for secrecy. There's a time and place for clandestine activity. But when the entire military mission in an entire continent like Africa is held under the level of secrecy that it is, then it is almost impossible for the American people to get any clarity on what's being done in their name. Mm -hmm. That is dangerous. That is dangerous. And and, And it would scare the shit out of our founding fathers who feared the military, and feared standing armies having too much power and subverting the Republic. This, this is dangerous stuff, guys, and, and uh, you have to pay attention to it. The very fact that we don't know the full story of this one minor battle tells us that the entire secrecy regime of AFRICOM is problematic. Absolutely.
0: All right, moving along here. I've Got an article from Truthdig uh, by uh, Juan Cole on Iraq reconstruction. Um, uh, my two tours in Iraq, you know, I, I didn't see a lot of big bombing runs or anything like that, but I saw a lot of the aftermath—the huge holes in buildings, entire homes collapsed on themselves—and I told myself that at some point we were going to work on this more so than we have, and. We're not. We're not really helping with reconstruction. During a recent conference in Kuwait designed to bring in funds for reconstruction in Iraq, the U.S. committed exactly zero dollars to assist in the reconstruction. Iraqi Prime Minister Hadir al-Abidi estimates that Iraq needs $100 billion to rebuild. The country is still devastated from the 2003 U.S. War of Aggression and an eight-and-a-half-year military occupation, which spurned Sunni insurgencies and led to the collapse of of the US and NATO-trained military in 2014. The past three and a half years have been spent attempting to recover the Sunni Arab areas of the country from ISIS, which involve destroying most Sunni Arab countries in, or excuse me, most Sunni Arab cities in the country. Mosul would be a good example.
1: Yeah, some of these cities look like Stalingrad. I mean, some of these yeah. cities—the best way to describe them is they—they're post-World War II yes. messes. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt, but that just like understand that when you picture the damage done to these parts of Iraq, they are rubbled.
0: Donald Trump ran on a platform of quote no more nation building. Um, and he didn't bother to articulate it. What nation has the U.S. built recently? A, US, uh, a Reuters report on the subject stated that the Trump administration hopes that Saudi Arabia will give substantially to rebuilding in exchange for staying away from Iran. Saudi Arabia is currently attempting to overthrow at least four governments at the moment, Yemen, Syria, Lebanon, and Qatar. Despite the substantial Shia population in Iraq and how Saudi Arabia's involvement in Yemen has only increased uh, given Trump's election, any financial connections made back to saudi arabia could bite them in the wrong run long run especially if saudi since saudi arabia is one punch card spot away from getting a free six overthrown government after buying the first five
1: <laughs> what a great line
0: yeah i uh as i mentioned earlier i did i did two tours in iraq and i saw people like any you'd find in america they were good hard-working individuals with families you know that Like Danny mentioned, you know, there were bad actors in there, and we we dealt with them. But overall, the Iraqi people are are peaceful and want to live. They want to feel safe and not wanting to become victims of violent governments bent on authoritarian pipe dreams. You notice how I said that. Americans don't want armored vehicles filled with troops driving down their streets. But we are all too happy to take our war machine to 70% of the world's countries. The Iraqi people have been terrorized by their own government and the governments of others, and the United States owes it a debt that can never be repaid, although that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. Now, a little more background on this, and I was surprised when I read this. The Obama administration did very little to change the game in Iraq when it came to Reconstruction. Obama's advisors were hell-bent on not wasting more money in Iraq, given the huge losses of cash, corruption, and bribery, not to mention loss of life, but instead creating a new office within the government that would support and monitor such reconstruction efforts. Obama did did nothing, at least with respect to Iraq and reconstruction, which is really surprising given the massive bombing campaigns that the U.S. has had against ISIS. More than enough money for bombs that have suck-it Arabs on the side, but not enough to build schools and homes for the people who made it through the occupation, both the Islamic State one and the American one.
1: I really don't know what to make of this administration yet because out of one side of its mouth, it says, we're not going to do nation building anymore. And to some extent I am happy about that because the last thing I want the United States doing is destroying societies and having to reconstruct them from the bottom up using our military, which is not really trying to do that. Then again, We were complicit in the destruction of a number of places in the Middle East. And so don't we have to be considered culpable in some sense economically for the rebuilding? Iraq was invaded and its society came apart, its infrastructure destroyed in 2003 by the United States. We funneled hundreds of billions of dollars into that country. But there was a lot of corruption. There was a lot of money lost. I mean, just type like... Billions lost or unaccounted for in Iraq, and 100 articles will come up. Yep. And then in 2014, ISIS came in and occupied about a third of Iraq. And even though most of the fighting on the ground was done by our Kurdish allies or by the Iraqi security forces, it was American bombs from American planes that rubbled most of these cities. And maybe that had to happen in order to dislodge ISIS. Maybe. That's a possibility. But then... Is Iraq supposed to rebuild all that themselves? Is their economy even suited to that? Is their oil revenue even high enough for that with increasingly diminishing oil prices? I. Mean, it, we have to be consistent. the The administration could say, "No more new nation building projects." Good, I agree. Let's do less intervention. Let's 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 fracture fewer societies. Yep. But then we also. Have to say, but, dot, 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 in areas where we have some moral culpability, we are going to do our best to help. Now, that doesn't mean more soldiers carrying bags of cash. That's not great. Or we don't need CIA agents carrying bags of cash in either. What we need is U.S. aid, U.S.-backed NGOs, United Nations institutions, true diplomacy, true foreign aid, not always military aid. We give out far more military aid, and we make far more from foreign arms sales, putting more weapons into these societies, than we do from actual foreign aid. You know what's interesting about that? And you could Google this, too. They've done a number of studies where they poll American people, and a a large majority of Americans believe that the foreign aid budget, how much money we give away to the rest of the world, is, like, exponentially higher than it is. We're not even one of the largest distributors, like, per capita of foreign aid. But Americans are convinced that we spend all this money on foreign aid. The reality is we don't. Most of the money we throw overseas, which is a lot, is military aid. Yep. And it's arms sales. It's, it's putting more weapons into these fractured societies. And, and the fact that Americans don't know that shows not only a lack of education or concern with foreign policy, but I would believe, and I'm not a big conspiracy theorist, But what I would believe is that ignorance and that apathy is necessary for the militarized elites and the military-industrial complex to continue doing what they're doing. Yes. They they count on your ignorance, folks. They count on you not reading a book. They want you to watch Real Housewives of wherever the fuck. Yep. They don't want you reading foreign affairs. They do not want you picking up The Atlantic every week, and they don't want you— really trolling around on the internet through good sources to find out what's really going on because if the american people ever stood up and knew anything about foreign policy there'd be a lot of hands being raised and a lot of questions being raised hypocrisy is one of the great dangers for american foreign policy america is not popular in the world guys nope. it's not we want to believe we are we think we ought to be but we're not on the arab street we are considered the biggest hypocrites and we're considered the second greatest threat to world peace behind Israel. Think about that for a second. Whenever they do polls, especially in the Middle East or the greater Middle East, I'm talking Morocco to Pakistan, it's almost always number one and number two, Israel and the United States are the biggest threats to peace, not Iran, not Saudi Arabia, not Russia, not China, not North Korea, not Iran, not all our favorite enemies, us. Now, are they right about that? I'm not so sure. I think maybe there's a little bit of exaggeration there, but we should still pay attention to those polls because they tell us how our policies are being viewed. And if you, if you help destroy Mosul, if you turn Mosul into a post-World War II Berlin or Stalingrad, and then you walk away and commit zero dollars to the reconstruction, you're feeding the narrative that makes them hate America. We need to be consistent, at least to the best of our ability.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I, uh, I listened to an uh, uh, episode of Zero Blog 30 recently, and they had on a guy who, uh, an American who became an Israeli soldier. And so I got to hear a little bit about his, his journey through that and learning Hebrew and everything. And I, I didn't, I, I, I really enjoyed listening to him, but I didn't feel like he was very intellectually honest about the societal differences there and about how israeli's view violence towards specific countries in the middle east um so anyway i just wanted to throw that out there it was it was uh it was interesting to hear about um and folks if you're super super bored you can go be an israeli soldier if you want to if you're an american i yeah uh, if
1: you want if you want to occupy illegally the yes. west bank and gaza um if you if you think america's not doing enough suppression of uh indigenous societies then you could join the israeli army and you could uh, stand guard at a checkpoint that insults uh and demeans uh palestinians who are denied civil rights (laughs) i I guess i'm throwing my bias out there right now
0: (laughs) well it's 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 hard to look at that and not ask the hard questions it's hard to look at that and see that the the injuries that some of those people get dealing with soldiers and body armor and assault rifles
1: we certainly wouldn't put up with it on our streets no. Um, well, I take that I don't. I, maybe not to that extreme. Although, if you look at the increasingly militarized police, especially in poor neighborhoods of color, you have to start asking questions about whether or not our, our police are starting to look like our military. But that's another topic for another day. Yes. Uh, yes. Yes. Although it is something I've written about. Google my name, and uh, uh, the empire comes home, and I wrote an article about that. But thank you
0: for joining us today please come join the conversation at www.fortressonahill.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill or on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Fortress on a Hill. We want to hear from our listeners about the topics and issues pertinent to America's military and veteran communities. And last but certainly not least, analyze your news and its sources very closely. Verify everything you read, and remember that no one, no matter how powerful, are above criticism, especially those with the power to send others into harm's way. We'll see you next time.